Welcome to episode 57 of The People on Kechung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. On this episode, our guests are John Knuth and Rachel Mason. John Knuth is an artist in Los Angeles, and he started a gallery in the iconic LA bookstore Circus of Books, which was run by Rachel Mason's parents. He also founded Circus Gallery in 2007, which operated through 2010. It's easy to sell porn. That's like selling food and water. Like, yeah. What do people need? Food, water, and pornography. Yeah. People don't need $5,000 paintings. You called me and said, hey, do you want to start putting on shows at my parents' bookstore? Yeah. Okay. And I thought, that is a fantastic idea. I'm going to put on, I'm going to have the best gallery at a gay porn store that ever existed. Rachel Mason is an artist, songwriter, filmmaker, and performer. She often performs as the character Future Clown. Here's her talking about her initial reaction to the inauguration of Donald Trump this past January. The art world did this thing. I remember that day we made this big show of like, we're going to close all galleries and museums. Everything's going to go dark. And I remember being irritated about them. I'm like, that's the wrong message to send at this moment when this monster is going to take over. No, like we need to go 10, like turn that shit up full blast. Don't go dark. I was just like, why not be loud? And at the end of the show, we'll hear from Los Angeles band Traffic Cult off their new album. Traffic Cult is Dan Delboy and Matt Norman. The People features the voices and ideas to make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. And just in case you didn't know, you can find us on iTunes and wherever else you find your podcasts on Overcast, on Stitcher. You can also find us on Facebook. And so please like us on Facebook. Yeah, or uh, leave us a rating or a review. That would be really great. And we're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. You can go to Insert Blanc Press and click on The People at the top of the page. John Knuth and Rachel Mason, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hi. <laughs> so, John, you wanted to start us out here? Yeah, uh, I, I had a little bit of an agenda coming into this interview. Um, one, I was when I started listening to the podcast, I was blown away with, with how good your interviews are oh, and shucks. how, uh, you know, you guys are great interviewers and that you're, you're taking the material and the people very seriously. And I thought it was nice that you have, you know, you guys are documenting a sort of secret history of Los Angeles art. Uh, and part of it when I was invited here was like, Oh my God, what do I have to share with the world? What do I want to get on tape? And part of it's pushing 40 and thinking, you know, what have I done to this point? Uh, there's a lot of rock and roll bands that I'm in that was into when I was young that are now like huge, um, and uh, you know, 20 years later, you're um, like 311. Yeah, well, like American football and Cap and Jazz, and <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Just these kind of the... Chicago bands that you know, yeah. 20 people saw and mm. now 2,000 people are seeing. 2,000. Huge. Yeah. So um, many. Uh, which is huge, huge to me. So I was thinking, you know, what am I interested in documenting and I thought Rachel Mason and I have a really interesting history. She has a fascinating history with Los Angeles. We have an, a weird history with starting a gallery in her parents' gay porn store, Circus of Books, which then transferred into Circus Gallery, which did a lot of really important art shows. You know, I'm going to use the word important because I was there. You know, I'm kind of the guy behind it. And so, uh, but, you know, Don Casper, Rachel Mason, James Crone, uh, these artists who have since gone on to pretty big things and are keep going keeping going so i thought it'd be a good thing to talk about legend status yeah well yeah. maybe hey. maybe we could start uh with you rachel telling us about circus of books and your relationship to it um 
Sure. Yeah, what is Circus of Books? <clears throat> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> um, I I start off laughing. That's <laughs> a good way. It's, it's funny. I actually am in the process of making a documentary, so I'm laughing a little because I've been immersed in this history for the last couple of years. And uh, the history of the store, which is sort of previous to John's involvement, and it's its own crazy, wild story. And it's actually kind of well-documented in the zeitgeist of the internet um about how my parent how my parents got into the um business and uh started distributing magazines and wound up as this you know normal straight couple just uh being at the center of the gay porn world and and I met John. Uh, I don't should I jump into our meeting or continue I'd say finish? tell the history of <clears throat> yeah yeah so okay in a nutshell yeah. okay in a nutshell, the store began in West Hollywood in like the 60s. And this is still sort of a, a piece of the history I'm trying to figure out. It was Book Circus originally. And the previous owners eventually, uh, the, the store eventually became Book Circus when my parents took it over in 1981. And uh, the way they got into it was that my dad was a sort of failed uh, dialysis inventor. He was really hoping also to break into the movie business. And he actually worked on special effects with um, in Star Trek and on 2001 and like all of the early legendary, you know, motion pictures. Worked on a student <clears throat> film with Jim Morrison. Yeah, he knew Jim Morrison. He was like in that moment in L.A. in the 68 UCLA film school. And, uh, you know, came out. But then it was really hard to get in the union and, you know, just had that classic difficult time. Uh, and uh, met my mom who came out here from Chicago as a journalist and she was working at her parents' hardware store and they were just trying to get my dad's inventions going. My dad was trying to break into the dialysis market with these <laughs> products that he was making. I know it sounds really hilarious, but his dad actually had kidney failure. And so it was this thing where he was just jerry-rigging uh, a component to this dialysis machine and then eventually made something pretty substantial that became patentable, but didn't know how to deal with pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry. And, uh, they saw an ad in the L.A. Times that Larry Flint had put out saying they needed people to deliver Hustler. So, of course, my parents were like, well, we could do that in our spare time. <laughs> and this little sideline that, you know, I only realize now that that little leap into like, we can deliver Hustler is like. The... I've got a van. I can start distributing Hustler. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the thing that does make my parents different from other people. Like, that wouldn't be your parents like first thought, like, that's us. Let's do it. <laughs> but they were like, that's a perfect perfect sideline my mom I think was even pregnant with my older brother and so they were delivering hustler from 75 till I think well you know they still deliver they still distribute but um they started just on a delivery route and book circus was one of their stores on that route and from 75 onward um you know they developed a very close relationship with Larry Flint and his gay publication was actually the one that sold really well at circus of books and the store's owners eventually um, became like drug addicts. There's this whole weird history. No one exactly knows what happens, but they lost the business. And my parents were very smart. They were just in this middle classic middleman's position of being owed a little money by the store and knowing, you know, the insider trading, you know, in the porn world of that this store is a great store and it's going under. 
we could possibly just take it over if we talk to the landlord. So they made a deal and said, you know, we'll pay your rent and you owe us some money. If you lose the business, we'd like to get in on it. And so that's exactly what happened. And, you know, 40 years later, there's, uh, there, I think it's been almost, well, what's 1981, so not quite 40. Because we're not quite 40. Not quite. So there nah. you go. So, yeah. But can I interject yeah. and put a couple of, uh, like, uh, hot punchlines in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At one point, Rachel's parents were the largest distributor of gay video porn in the nation. At one point, the first George Bush administration, uh, they were in an entrapment case with the FBI for sending uh, porn to Pennsylvania. The case was later thrown up because of entrapment. Uh, you know, David Hockney used to shop there. Elton John. Uh, Elton John <laughs> used to shop there. So the bookstore has an immense history uh, in, um, you know, First Amendment issues, in uh, gay culture issues, uh, pop culture. Uh, it's a weird place. Great place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a seminal historic place in the history of queer culture in L.A. And mm-hmm. basically it was there before uh, anything else was. And I mean, that was just, you know, it was so early. And it, this documentary that I've been working on for the last two years has been so revealing because all these interesting like I interviewed Larry Flint and he was like of course I remember because I always knew my parents knew him I didn't know that he knew them like he's just got tons of different people but he was like yeah of course I know the circus of books he's like it's the most important gay bookstore and and your parents were was were my best and first distributors in LA and and I remember and after I came off this interview with Larry Flint I was asking my mom various questions and so many things came out like she was like yeah well you know when he was shot you know we sent him a telegram in the hospital and and I was like really and I googled when he was shot it was 1978 so I was like I was pregnant like I you you were pregnant with me when you were sending Larry Flint telegram when he was shot and they were both like really devastated by that so they have this very strong history to all these and they also end up working with Jeff Stryker, who was one of the most legendary gay porn stars of all time. And they made Stryker Force, which I didn't realize my parents were also like, they got involved in producing and distributing. And that's the next phase of their And business. to add a little bit more history, I, it's, mm. it's my impression that your parents were hiring men with HIV and AIDS status uh, during the height of the uh, uh, AIDS epidemic. And some of these men, you know, were in very rough shape and they were showing them immense compassion. Yeah, well, that's what, you know, it's it's really cool that there's going to be a documentary and a, uh, a podcast, and these are going to be, like, mainstream. Really excited about that because, basically, it's it's a history that's really critical. And I, I think my parents, they're, you know, they don't think of themselves as heroes at all, but what they were were, like, accidental heroes, which is the kind of people we need right now. You know, you hear about, like, all the stuff that's going on. There are these random people that, oh, suddenly you're um, housing some people that are getting like taken away from ICE and you didn't necessarily mean to do this, but what else were you going to do? That, that's how my parents were with people with AIDS. It was like, uh, you know, oh, well, this 25-year-old is dying um, and he wants to keep his job. So, you know what? I'm going to let him keep his fucking job, you know, and pay him cash because that's what you should be doing. And, you know, my mom would talk to the people who – uh, would call after their son had died and they'd be like, what was, what was he like at the end? And my mom would be like, you know what? Screw you. Like, why were you not like in LA with him at the hospice? Why were we there? You know? So in a strange way, I think my parents took in a bit of a role just because it was the right thing to do totally accidental. And so that piece of it is, is truly like 
that's their heroism. And also I think not being afraid of gay people at a time when it was totally publicly okay to be outright just like sick. I mean, I was just reading some, some newspaper articles from the eighties. I was like amazed at the, the actual language used by politicians, the language about gay people, homosexual, like the homosexual disease and the homosexuals, like the words, the, like the use of like the actual really sick, like, like bigoted language that was tolerated. You know, it was, it was amazing to me that in our own lifetimes, there was this type of, I mean, well, it's not amazing. Look what we're seeing right now with our president. It's yeah. actually real. It's, so I'll stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> it has not gone away. All right. Uh, wait, so what was the point here? Oh, yeah. Know. Well, so how, so how did, so how did, I, uh, I went on a how did oh, yeah. the Circus of Books gallery portion start? When did that happen? Okay, so, th- so that John so, can so, jump in it. Yeah. Yeah, so Rachel and I both ended up living in Chicago around the year 2000, 2001. And we became friends again, like one of those life changing moments where uh, I picked up an artist book she'd made, these free artist books she was putting around. <laughs> and I have a very uh, clear memory. I picked it up at the Hyde Park Art Center in Chicago, and it was scraps of paper from, you know, her uh, printer paper, uh, you know, throw throwaway printer paper, stapling together. And then the one I found just happened to have the top of her resume and the t- her email address on it. And at that point in Chicago, I didn't know anybody. Didn't know any artists, had just moved there, moved to Hyde Park, moved to the South Side, and emailed Rachel and said, this book is cool. What are you doing? Do you want to hang out? <laughs> I remember it a little differently, and it's so <laughs> funny that you say that because your email, I should find it. But it's one of those things, though, that does make you think about the fucking weirdness of life. And, like, if you don't do the most random thing, like, you know that snowball, like, what is it? Like, you blow butterfly, into the, the butterfly. Butterfly flaps you know, its wings in Brazil or whatever. Honest yeah. to God, this is that kind of thing. Like, it's insane. It was like almost an angry thing. I was like, just cut this stuff up and put it out there and see what happens. And I remember I had almost, it was like almost a nihilistic effort. And I knew that nobody was going to ever like find me through they it. They looked like trash too. Yeah. Like it looked like <laughs> trash stapled together. Yeah. <laughs> and me no, being a collector yeah, of, yeah, you know, oddity, I was like, this is interesting trash. <laughs> I, I had no reason to make it. And I, except that I was like lonely and sad. And then when I got the email from John, what I loved about it was that your email said, I found this thing that was that was cool slash annoying. And I want <laughs> and that's what I loved about your email was that you actually wrote the word like annoying in there. I was like, and that I wrote back a little defiant. I was like, what was annoying about it? <laughs> like I know it was like random, but <laughs> Yeah. So, but maybe it was pretentious. And then and then I was like, I can't believe you found the one of these which actually had some contact info on there that's what was mind-blowing to me yeah and so that that was the the bizarre uh, serendipity of the meeting um but i I have one (laughs) before we wrap up i have one uh thing i want to say at that time in chicago so in around the year 2000 2001 2002 2003 there was a uh, an incredible uh, apartment gallery scene happening Mm, and uh so that's what led up to the circus of books that's why Mm. i want to keep going back to chicago Mm -hmm. so at that time in in the neighborhood pilsen which is now a bougie neighborhood it used to be a latino neighborhood um or not bougie but you know it's gentrified uh there was uh, young people putting on their own art shows in their houses like dogmatic was a really incredible space 710 split which is tim fleming's gallery who now runs art los angeles contemporary uh 
uh, uh, Unit B, which was another woman's space. One R was a really important space. That's run by Mark LeBlanc, who just opened his own gallery in Chicago called M. LeBlanc, and he was the director of Kavi Gupta's gallery for a while. Mm-hmm. Silas Dilworth was involved in that. He's a graphic designer who does all the graphic design for Art Los Angeles Contemporary. So uh, yeah. it was all these young people who were looking at art and saying, you know, Galleries don't give a shit out about about us. There's no market. The museums don't mm-hmm. care about us. But we're going to put on shows in our apartment. We're going to take them really seriously. We're going to present them really well. Uh, and it was absolutely inspiring to me. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is great. Mm. I want to mm. show artwork. How do I do it? And these guys were really cool. Mm. And they were so deeply like artists slash gallerists who were also just like around. Right. And to give some context, like 1R put on the first uh, Sterling Ruby show. They did the first Amanda Rosshoe show. They did the first Aaron Curry show. So, you know, with a little bit of effort, they made a big impact. Yeah. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Of course, you can find us on iTunes and everywhere else you find podcasts. You can also find us on SoundCloud, and you can find all of our past episodes there and everywhere else for free for you to listen to. Yeah, or you can listen to K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 p.m. You can also hear us there. And now let's get back to our conversation with John Knuth and Rachel Mason. One of the things I think is interesting about uh, Rachel and my relationship and, and the whole circus gallery, circus of books thing is doing making art in weird places and not ne- not needing permission to make work. And Rachel, when we first met, you did an opera in the streets of Chicago. Yeah, that's right. Wow, that was such like it was one of my first real performance art pieces that took me a long time <laughs> to make right and and mm-hmm. just to set some premise wow. uh the audience would um take taxis from place to place and like from oprah's studio to uh, a shoe salesman's place i remember yeah. jay pliner that's all i remember yeah i did it first yeah no i did an opera um on the streets but it was solo and it was like very minimal resources i was just like all right what can i do with myself in chicago and i made this opera and it actually was the first thing that led me to realize I could incorporate music and singing into my work, and that became how I've proceeded ever since. I, I basically, music and songwriting is a big part of my actual practice. Right, and the reason I bring that up is because I think it leads into Future Clown, which uh, for the audio, you know, for the listeners, Rachel's kind of has like a viral hit with this Future Clown character, right? Yeah, I don't know if it's viral. I'd yeah, say it's, it's a, a hit. All right. It's a hit. <laughs> it did. It has brought me to Australia. That was the coolest thing. I, I was just in Australia um, doing a future clown performance. And yeah, well, I, I basically started it out when uh, I was doing like different character performances with future clown. Uh, I, I often have a character that I, I guide through things. And um, uh, so this one future clown took on initially it was rand paul did a 13-hour filibuster and i was watching it one day and i was like god that is that's like a real performance art endurance test and then i listened to it and it was the weirdest absurdist theater like if you listen to a filibuster they are strange it's not and you're just amazed at how our government works so i have also a history of just making political work and i always find that to me the best stuff is when it's uh on the edge of just confusion you're just aware of even more craziness and who are these people in power and what how they have this massive effect on all these all of us um and so this clown character i i i I started by reenacting 
Rand Paul's, my first internet piece that did really well. Uh, I, I reenacted his 13-hour filibuster, did all 13 hours of it, lip-synced it, and put it back up online just like he did with his you know, 13 hours. And so there was this kind of like competition for like, I'm going to do my clown version. And I did the same thing when uh, Donald Trump got elected. And I remember, I, I think Vice mm. picked that up, right? Um, a lot of places. Yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, New York Times New York did. Times picked it up. Yeah. Vice picked up my opera, which is cool. Hamilton Fish. That's right. the next big musical performance. But re- most recently, the one that got a lot of attention was that when Trump got elected actually i remember it because i i called up uh sarah russin the director of lace like right before it was gonna happen and i just was like oh my god i i can't believe this like i know he's supposed to be president but i can't get my head around that that is too fucking nuts and i was like i couldn't just let it happen i'm like i'm gonna have to do something and i want it to be like an art stage would you be cool if like i came to lace on the day of the inauguration and live streamed his lip sync. Can we make that happen? And she was like, sure, let's do it. So I went to Lace, which is not far from me. I live in Hollywood. So I was like, perfect. I can go there. And I went there and live streamed. And it was the weirdest thing because the day of his inaugural speech in LA, it was raining and dark. It was like clouds. (laughs) It was so like. God was pissed. He was so pissed. (laughs) She was so pissed. God was like, hell no. I'm going to make this miserable. And there are not that many people are going to show up to your damn fucking inaugural. And uh, (laughs) and, no, and it was really weird because also like the internet was splotty. So it was so strange. But within an hour of it, um, she had called uh, Carolina Miranda of the L.A. Times and that that had kind of spun out. And because the art world did did this thing that and I have a, you know, love hate relationship with the art world because I feel like often we're this tiny little group, you know, like let's not cut off our legs. And I I remember that day we made this big show of like we're going to close all galleries and museums. Everything's going to go dark. And I remember being irritated about them. I'm like, that's the wrong message to send at this moment when this monster is going to take over. No, like we need to go 10, like turn that shit up full blast. Don't go dark. And I was like pissed about that. I just remember being like, okay, yeah, like I get it. It's a protest. Let's, you know, the blackout of the inaugural. It's but but people are already not paying attention to the art world. Like, how many people are logging onto the MoMA's fucking website, except for artists who are like already a minority who are like you know intellectuals, whatever. They're not to the you know Trump people are not like giving a fuck. So I was just like, why not be loud? And I I asked a few places if they would live stream that just because I wanted to make that point. So a few publications like Art F City and some others that are cool and you know cool to me because they <laughs> featured my future clown video <laughs> but i i actually found, so a few weeks after um i had people all over contacting me saying like thank you for like doing that it made me feel so hopeful i was so depressed on that day and like future clown like fighting back at that moment you know they live streamed this video and it was like on their site instead of it being black it was you know a video feed and I think it's important to be funny. I really do like to me humor is kind of our saving grace right yeah, now. Yeah, and we're yeah. and I mean I should say for the listeners we're talking about art on the radio, which also is funny just to begin with. <laughs> but just to set the tone for what Rachel's doing, she's wearing like a f- classic French clown outfit with like a Jean Dubuffet <laughs> sort of helmet uh psychedelic helmet on. 
doing that's what she looks like (laughs) so you know what actually that's a good little segue because i went to yale and when i was there that was sort of my entree into the real art establishment but i also went to ucla before that and i um in the interim between ucla and yale went to chicago that's where i met john and then i kind of started my own political awakening with art and being a part of this elite you know group that gets to do this stuff and i was at yale and i kind of became aware of the art world and when I came out of Yale and I was, you know, entering the New York art world, I actually had this one also kind of a hit, a sculpture called Kissing President Bush. And it was on the front cover of the New York Times, which I didn't realize at that moment because I was like, fresh out of school. It was like a big deal. And I was like, oh, I guess that's just what happens to people. Like, <laughs> never in my life have I ever had that again. And it was literally a plaster sculpture of Rachel <clears throat> kissing President Bush. Yeah. And it, who I thought was so evil. <laughs> it was just ironic. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, my God. Wow. Well, he, he was. So he seems yeah. so charming, yeah, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think of him now, now that he's a painter. I think of him as just like, uh, you know, wow, he was such a puppet. Like, what a puppet of really evil people. But so long story short, I was feeling very filled with turmoil at the Bush era and also just this sense John had moved to L.A. And, you know, he and I are constantly, even now, as much as in touch as we can be with our mm-hmm. schedules and stuff. And you were just like out of school and I, it was like one of our ideas I don't even know whose it was maybe it was yours you, or mine. you called me and said hey oh. you want to start putting on shows at my parents bookstore yeah okay and I thought that yeah. is a fantastic <laughs> idea I'm going to put on I'm going to have the best gallery at a gay porn store that ever existed <laughs> Yeah. And I can say that I had the best gallery at a gay <laughs> porn store that ever existed. Totally. And 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 you did. And, and and it was like amazing. I think I just like put the idea. I, I was not even sure how serious I was about it. I was just like, this would you be so cool. You pitched it and I thought it was such a great idea. Yeah. And right. I, I, you know, I pitch a thousand ideas and like, you <laughs> right. know, it's like, all right, you want that? It's all yours. And, and your parents were down, I assume. You know, my mom's whole thing. Well, I will throw in. Okay. If we, if we cut into stuff with the circus, that is funny stuff. So my mom's whole thing is that she is like a classic small business owner where it's like one thing matters and that is selling shit, period. <laughs> so her whole thing is like, can you sell this stuff? Fine. Bring it in here. But her, her funny little intro to the art world through me is like, well, mom, you know, this is actually going to be like over a hundred dollars and people might like you know put their name down saying they want it but they'll buy it later and i was like what the fuck is that like no the, where's the cash like so so john i'll, I'll segue because you can cut this in because when john actually was like deep into the gallery i just remember hearing this constant thing we're like we have this big space why is there no inventory out <laughs> and john's like because karen i need just one painting right here like the show is not about that and my mom's like but the inventory is in the back and no one gets to see it and you know you have to invite people in and they're showing up and and this guy who says he's a big collector shows up in sweatpants after telling us <laughs> that a month he's gonna buy this piece and like that's what he looks like i who are these people like her her you know her whole she thing was is so like, angry that dean valentine the big collector was <laughs> came into the gallery wearing sweatpants yeah because yeah. she had heard his name all month she was yeah. like I, this is dean valentine <laughs> he's not in a suit and tie like what you know he's gonna spend all this money <laughs> but um so the funny thing is that my parents are are used to like high inventory low cost and the art world is the opposite low inventory high cost and and john throughout the entire run god bless you that you managed for two years to deal with by like endlessly 
constantly at his throat for like not <laughs> selling more cheaper was that that concept didn't work for her. Yep. And I remember your dad had a nice conversation with Don and Mira Rebel holding a Taco Bell bag. <laughs> and I'm he sure. didn't know who that was. Over the course of two years, we showed over 200 artists, including, uh, you know, Andre Butzer, Dave Muller, Liz Kraft, uh, Corey Newkirk, Julian, Julian Hobart, curated an incredible show. Kristen Don, Calabrese. Kristen Calabrese. Uh, Don Casper did her first performance so uh, so in, in, as a living person there. Um, Don, for those listeners, Don Casper is now in the Venice Biennial. Um, doing a performance there, um, yeah, and so there yeah. was this real like so go-getter artists. sort of youthful yeah. attitude happening, um, and you know, uh, then that transferred to Circus Gallery from '07 to 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I, I'm gonna jet out, but I'll say that I, I did a show there, and it was amazing because I was uh, documenting with drawings the first presidential campaign of the primaries of before Obama got elected. So this was 08. Rachel was uh, yeah. had, had a press pass and she was following the uh, presidential um, primary campaigns um, and and sketching the audience and the president and the candidates including like Mike Gravel came and uh, he gave a talk at the gallery gave a right. stump speech because I actually wrote to all the candidates and I was like hey come to this gallery if you want to do it and so Mike Gravel actually showed up and he's the most fringy of them all. And he was right awesome. and, Mike, and Mike Gravel's one of his hits in history he's a really important American yeah. um, is as a congressman he read the Pentagon Papers on the uh, uh, House floor yeah he was a big deal and yeah the, the gallery it really did have um, it's like amazing when you think about what uh, but I will say this really I you know I, I can't take any credit for any of it it was all entirely 100% John I showed up, did a few things, tried to, you know, talk my mom out of closing it every single minute. And that, that would be my job. And, you know, she was really upset when I didn't do a second show. And I do think that maybe that led, to, you know, it was kind of hitting the financial turmoil period of like 2008 when it just, it you know, my mom was not willing to write it out because in her mind, right. it was a disaster from the get-go. She had no idea that like getting into art forum every month was a big deal or, right like, and, and i do yeah, want to say we were getting incredible mm. press including art forum and things but yeah. so the first year 2007 to 2008 we did 175 thousand dollars in sales and that was enough to pay the gallery two thousand dollars a month in rent pay my salary wow. and we i'm happy to say we paid every artist but then september 2008 happened and the economy collapsed and the gallery limped along for another year at plus and that that's was the that's was you know it's easy to sell porn that's like selling food and water like yeah, yeah. what do people need food water and pornography yeah people don't need five thousand dollar paintings yeah no and and i do notice that i it's maybe gave me some insight into the art world is that the, it's the people behind it that are passionate and my mom could even though i'm an artist like she could care less about art right. <laughs> she supports me in so you know enough of a way of like all right well even today she's watching my youtube video and like all right well you know it's it's not gonna go viral. <laughs> like that's all she's like. All right, who's gonna buy that? Anyway, just a lot of people just don't understand art as we know and yeah. can't <laughs> get it or don't want to. Don't want yeah. To. yeah. Although weirdly, she'll my mom will pick up on the most random piece and and like it. Like she'll she would go to the shows and um, 
you know, they're like, I, you know, I don't understand why Don is getting a tattoo, like, you know, t- tattooing her, her body. Like, that's so horrible. And then, <laughs> and then at the same time, she would like something that I would find. I mean, I can't remember what she liked, but it was like these things that would be like, oh, wait, I'm just, that's interesting. Like, you're responding to this, you know this piece here when it's you know she just had very yeah it's also pretty refreshing to like support and create a gallery and mm-hmm. at the same time have the react like a a pretty like actual normal reaction to like the art world is that it's like are you kidding me i, I mean you know i think I it like is that interesting she, you know that yeah. she had that reaction it's like it is weird that dean valentine would be wearing sweatpants. <laughs> yeah i mean it's like you're rich as fuck yeah yeah yeah, well, that's on. it. Does it does show you your you know if if you're talking to the average person, what are they gonna think of somebody that would come in and spend ten thousand dollars? Like that would be someone in a business suit. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know, your parents might imagine that too, but like yeah. you know, it's the paradox of fashion that rich people want to wear jeans <laughs> that have holes in them. Right. Yeah. You know, I've worked my whole life to not have holes in my pants, <laughs> and that's why we're all that's, wearing full <laughs> suits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. I'm naked. <laughs> Except for John, who's stark naked. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio, or you can find us on anywhere else, uh, any other platform that you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to rate us and review us if you get a chance. That would be really great. That'd be great. Thanks so much. And we're going to get back to our conversation with John Knuth and Rachel Mason. So now that Rachel had to take off... Um, I guess I'll give some context to what we're talking about. Uh, so Circus Books Gallery started with the first show, National Observer. And I think part of, you know, the reason I wanted to talk about the Chicago apartment scene is it was so inspirational in, you know, and that I came from, I mean, as so many of us artists did, came from a punk rock background, apartment show background, you know, whatever loft show background where you're putting on shows with your friends and it doesn't matter because your 30 friends are there and you're having the best time and you believe in the culture you're making, even if nobody, even if nobody else is believing in the culture you're making. And, um, so that as a umbrella idea fed into, uh, uh, the gallery in a gay porn store where like, um, most of the people who went in there, the hundreds of people who went in there on a daily basis had no idea of the artwork they were seeing. So, you know, for instance, the first show is called National Observer. Um, uh, it included Anne Angel, Sam Bridgman, Julian Hober, Rachel Mason, Kirsten Pusemp, and, uh, um, and it was like a political idea. So I'm kind of rambling on names because I think it sets a context for like names that you know who are still making things a decade later and names that you know, may aren't necessarily known names. Yeah. Um, and like Professor Winkler, who was a, a associate of Andre Bootser's, did a show which included the world famous Angeline or the LA famous Angeline. That was a good story where she came to the gallery in her pink Corvette and refused to get out of the car. <laughs> um, and uh, I went up and introduced myself to her and she put the fan in front of her face and I asked her if I could get a picture. And she said, that'll be $20. And I said, I'm the guy running the gallery who put your painting on the wall. Are you really going to charge me to take a picture with you? Yeah, she's all biz. Oh, she was all biz. And she said, yeah, I'm going to charge you to take the picture. And I said, okay, Angeline. I was so Twitter paid. You know, I was so like overwhelmed with meeting Angeline that I paid her 20 bucks to to get the picture taken with her. Uh, Julian Hobart curated an incredible show there called Many, Many Guys and Girls, All Real Beauties. And that title comes from a X song. Um, And then... His premise was he wanted to get as many photographs 
many photographs from artists as he could, uh, some of who weren't even artists, but he wanted, he loved the way the, uh, uh, magazine imagery bled into the art imagery and the sort of slippage in between you know he's somebody who's who has really been involved with like you know worked on a camera set shooting pornography before like worked as a cameraman shooting pornography before and loved that he could take his two sort of uh mass culture image interests and his fine art image interests and have them overlap into you know, a jarbled mess. So there was, I think, over 100 photographers in the show. I think like 150 photographers in the show. And then one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that history is we did the first performance by Don Casper as a living artist. You know, up until this point, she had been famous for doing these performances as a dead person where she would lie on the floor of the gallery and stage a car accident and she would play dead for five hours or lie in a pond face down for five hours and play dead for five hours. And at a certain point, she decided, this is bad vibes. Like, spiritually, this is not working for me. And uh, uh, I need to embrace life. So her first performance as a living per person was called Searching for Clues to the Meaning of Life, which was performed at, uh, in, at Circus of Books. I mean, I guess one of the ideas that I was interested in having this conversation with you guys about is, you know, as an artist and as a creative person, you put your time in for so long and eventually what you did or the sort of nonchalant nothings you did or little bit of effort you put in becomes something that does have a contextual history. Um, you know, one instance of that is the last show at, Circus of Books Gallery was curated by Omar Lopez Shahoud, um, and it was called Artist Self-Portrait as Porn Stars, uh, and it was a co-curated exhibition, which the artists made self-portraits of them, their vision of them as a porn star, and then it was also uh, printed um, concurrently in Zing Magazine. Um, but then just to give some context, Omar Lopez Shahoud uh, has gone on to be the director of Untitled Art Fair. Mm -hmm. That happens in Miami every year, um, and he's a big sort of New York organizer, curator guy. Yeah. Um, well, on that tip, what um, like while you were doing Circus of Books Gallery before mm -hmm. Circus Gallery, which we can get into in a second, what was your relationship with um, uh, with I'm using air quotes here, like with like r real real galleries, like uh, bigger galleries? Like, were you even paying attention, or were you showing in them, or yeah, not. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. Like what's the real gallery versus what's not the real gallery. Right. Sure. You know, my attitude has uh, always been like, take yourself serious enough and people will start taking you seriously. And um, I wasn't sure I couldn't show any galleries. Like nobody would show my work and, you know, come this is 05, 05 to 07. Um, uh, I wasn't. I mean, I was putting on my own shows, and that was part of the creative process, which, you know, anybody who does an apartment gallery, which isn't a unique thing anymore, um, knows. And, you know, like Matthew, as a publisher, you know yeah. that, you know, you make your own party. Yeah. Um, and you were making work at this time, too, so. <clears throat> yeah, and um, that was, like, when I first started the fly paintings, uh, um, I was also doing these sugar sculptures. Um, oh, at that time, James Cronin and I did a two-person show at 16 to 1 Gallery. Yeah. Uh, which was a really great space on Pico at like Poppy Fields. What is that street? The exit? Anyway. Yeah. So I should set some more history. So, um, 
So you asked about, was I showing in real galleries? Yeah. Uh, there was a really amazing apartment gallery or house gallery called Jamoka, Justin's Museum of Contemporary yeah, Art, absolutely. which was uh, run by Justin Hanch and his roommates. Justin Hanch is a great painter who lives in Ventura right now. Hmm. And um, so Justin, I found out about Jamoka. Uh, I, rem- I remember he put on his first show and I was so excited that somebody was doing this apartment gallery thing or this house gallery thing. And I remember I took a taxi cause my car was broken. I took a taxi up to his house in Silver Lake and I showed up and got out of the car and got out of the taxi. And Justin said, Oh my God, you really came to my sh- gallery in a taxi. You just spent money to come here. You know, like $8 to take a taxi was a lot of money back then. So Kirsten Pusemp and I did a, a show uh, you know, what type of work was I making then? Um, we did a show where I was doing these sugar volcanoes where I would dump hundreds of pounds of sugar on a 100-watt light bulb, and the light bulb would create enough heat that it would caramelize the sugar, and then the caramelized sugar would spill out, making a volcano, um, you know, acting as the lava, and then it would fill the whole gallery or the whole house up with amazing, beautiful, caramel-smelling smoke. Mm. Um, and then Kirsten did uh, a projection in the bathroom that made it look like the bathroom was flying and did little sound boxes of bird sounds and, and, and cardboard boxes. So... You know, that question of real galleries, like, I don't know. Sean Regan hasn't expressed any interest in me. Blum and Poe, I don't care. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Larry Gagosian, you can come over if you want when you listen to this. He's a regular listener, yeah. Cool. Yeah. You know, Blum and Poe, come on over. Sean Regan, I would yeah. love to hang out with you. That sounds great. But the reality is I don't get invited to do that. So you just put on shows where you can. And, um, uh, you know, belief... Belief in what you're doing really tr- transforms a space, even if it's a friend's house. Yeah, it becomes it becomes something else. So it was with that spirit. So Karen and Barry Mason liked what they were seeing at Circus of Books Gallery because they were embarrassed to tell their friends, you know, at the synagogue that they helped start. <laughs> Uh, that they were embarrassed to tell their friends that they were making their fortune in gay porn, but they had an art gallery, and so that was something positive that they could tell tell their friends about. And so, uh, you know, think this is 2007, and the internet is building up. Meanwhile, video sales and DVD sales are are disappearing, yeah. and so they didn't ride ride that sort of putting, you know, porn on the internet which meant everything went from VHS and got smaller to DVD and got smaller to online and got smaller. And so they had a warehouse space in West Hollywood uh, near the corner of La Brea and Santa Monica. And they said, would it make sense to open an art gallery here? And I enthusiastically said, yeah, (laughs) I've never sold any artwork in my life, not my own, not anybody else's. I can run a commercial art gallery, no problem. I'm the most organized of my friends, you know? <laughs> and that's sort of what the curse was, is like I was the guy who could get it together to write the press release and put together an email list. Uh, and, you know, at that time, like getting the listing in the weekly was important. Um, and so I, you know, stopped making artwork and for three years, like put on a, put on a blazer and uh, became a gallery director. Um, and had some great shows, and it was a really nice yeah. space. Yeah, yeah and Katie so, Herzog, every former guest on the People, yeah. and a good person all around. I gotta listen around. to the Katie Herzog episode. It's an early one. It's pretty yeah. rough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anything, with, Kate, anything yeah. with Katie on, it's gonna be great, though. I mean, yeah. that, that Agreed. lady is Agreed. real, real what, bright. What was the first show? So the first show, I really wanted to. Uh, I, I was putting together a list of artists, and it was called "The Wonder of It All." And uh, it just so happened a few of the artists I was interested in were women, and then I thought I really wanted to have an all-female 
uh, first show, which was really, you know, important to me. One of the things that was so interesting for me as the gallery director in the situation is at some point, you know, your apartment gallery or your gay porn store gallery becomes legitimate and you start selling artwork. And, you know, I took it upon myself to, I quit making artwork for the course of time. My sole focus was how do I, you know, how do I fake it till I make it till I make it? And at a certain point we did start making it. Um, you know, sales are really good. We did a show with Steve Bankhead uh, um, that was really an incredible show that was a series of drawings he did for each day of the week. And they were um, uh, uh, these like punk rock posters and they were um, um, pencil on paper sort of punk rock posters and really incredible show and we sold it out, you know. And to me at that point, like the idea of a sold out show was like unheard of. You know, it wasn't something that my sort of low-level peers, meaning me too, like that was not a concept that was like big people, big people did that. We didn't do that. Yeah. And Steve was an incredible, or Steve is an incredible artist. Yeah. And, and we did do that. So we started to make money. And one of the things I alluded to uh, previously in the conversation, you know, that first year uh, we had a few, sh we, we did $175,000 in sales, which coming from nothing to that and you know working your tail off and kind of chasing every lead really was remarkable and substantial it's um, like maserati speeds yeah, yeah yeah i mean it felt good felt yeah, really zero good to 175 yeah. yeah and it felt good <laughs> but i mean you know that money disappears quick if you think like the artist gets 50 percent of it that means you're only making like 8500 whatever you know mm -hmm. eighty five thousand. but then the gallery has to take 2000 a month in rent plus myself plus taxes you know so things disappear really fast when yeah. you're dealing with a business like that um but uh you know at the same time we're doing really funny weird great creative like soul uplifting shows like Margie Schnibby who's also a K, uh, K, K Chung K rocker K rocker <laughs> a K chunger uh Margie Schnibby who's also a K chunger um she did an incredible show. Uh, I had met her at a party at Carol Stacanis's house, who was the director of Lace. And uh, I was attracted to her because she had like crazy pink hair at the time and these big glasses. And she was a real character, still is a real character. And I st introduced myself to her and, uh, you know, I was just struck by her as an individual and went to her studio to do a studio visit. And she was making these incredible drawings and incredible paintings and things, but at the same time, she was a gay. Er, she was a, a porn movie director. Right. So she was under contract with like Vivid Porn and um, and uh, a couple other porn companies where she was directing alt porn at the time, and so she still had a contract with Vivid uh, to shoot another movie. So she would take a set design budget and put that into her art making and then she would take a location design budget and put that into her art making and at the same time more people were seeing her art via porn distribution than would ever see her show at an art gallery and so I said whoa Margie let's 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 see if we can get that contract to do the show at circus of or circus gallery and uh, if that doesn't work, let's just do a show of your drawings. And she said, that sounds like a great idea. So it turned out that we, her show called um, Honey Bunny mm -hmm. um, uh, was at the gallery, and she did a couple of different sets, three different set 
designs as, you know, portions of the gallery, one on the mezzanine, one underneath the mezzanine, and one in the main sort of space that were also the sets for the shoot. So she had a girl-on-girl scene and two guys-on-girl scenes shot. And uh, and then the gallery got paid a $1,000 location fee out of it, which was incredible. I mean, uh, it was a very bizarre and high and low point of my life to be, you know, essentially I was outside of the gallery most of the time, like, guarding the craft services because I (laughs) (laughs) but um you know it was such a such a gas to be able to play with creativity and expectations of how an art show is and exists with somebody like Margie I have a couple of those uh honey bunny zines actually she gave to me recently I think volume one and volume two which I didn't realize must have been from that they came out directly from that movie yeah yeah I think you can probably still buy the movie. I don't know. She signed a copy for me. It was real nice of her. Uh, And then, you know, we did a show with, so another idea of like how to start playing with the form, like what if the form becomes um, legitimate and what if you all of a sudden become professional? How can you play with that? So one of the ideas was to, uh, we did a solo show with Sarah Cromarty and Sarah Cromarty um, previous in a previous life of hers was really involved in the rave scene in the Midwest and um, uh, was kind of the queen of the rave scene in the Midwest. So one of the things she wanted to do was curate a show that we would then take to Burning Man, which was, you know, like the rave scene. This is 08, probably 09. Um, and so we had Jim Shaw, Marnie Weber, uh, Eduardo Sarabia, Rai Rocklin, you know, all in my little hatchback, their artwork, not them, all in my little hatchback mm-hmm. with Sarah Camardi. And then um, uh, we went to Burning Man, put the artwork out in the desert. And, you know, when you're at Burning Man, have you guys been to Burning Man? No. Why not? Uh, i've been you know there's no reason to go back no but it wasn't like it was a totally amazing cultural experience to go to burning man but you know when you're dealing with uh a dragon car shooting fire out of its butt and face with like naked pirates hanging off of it with like flame throwing you know penis guns like the most insane things you can ever imagine when you put like a frame jim shaw drawing which looks wild in an art gallery context but when you put that out on the playa next to like you know flame throwing dragon cars it doesn't exist right and i learned you know that's some it's one of those things that you never really consider in your life but then you realize that our little idea of what gallery art is doesn't compare to sort of you know burning man art and the, the idea of the outrageous or the idea of the spectacle is, like, obviously very relative. Right, right. Exa- exactly. And, you know, even Margie's show, which incorporates the idea of the spectacle or the idea of the outrageous, it was it was outrageous and weird, but it wasn't – it was so thoughtful. And uh, it wasn't, like – it wasn't uh, – it wasn't just done for outrageous sake. Right. Um, it was she had a thoughtful idea of why she was doing this and it was really uh, special to be involved in it you know so john the 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 scene at circus gallery there at the time um was pretty particular it was like a there weren't other galleries around it if you went to circus gallery at least not that i knew of it was like i would go to circus gallery right that would be the thing so first we should let's talk about the location so yeah the location was um on lexington just off of Santa Monica and La Brea and 
now there's all these galleries around it. Steve Turner, sure, LAX art, but then Regan, then, then it was nothing. It nothing. was, but it was, it was, it was real old, awesome Hollywood. Yeah, um, you know, we had like a lot of meth guys hanging out who would come and snoop around behind the gallery and things. Um, so you know, but this was a decade before all of the kind of big hit galleries came in um, to that area. But then as a scene, it was really good. And it wasn't one of those things that you realize at the time, but it was it was like a, I mean, I might be projecting because I was the, you know, I was kind of doing it, but it was the scene of the time where you catch the zeitgeist or mm-hmm. these young artists who are so vibrant at the time. And there were so many good artists I knew who I couldn't offer all solo shows. And, you know, when you can only do one show every six weeks, there are so many artists that I knew who were incredible artists, but it captured, it sort of harnessed this energy where the openings would be packed and there'd be say 300 people there. And it was like a real party. Like I felt like, Oh man, there's an energy that's being captured of this time. So John circus of books gallery and then circus gallery encapsulates about uh, three to five years of like real output. Uh Great work. What afterwards are you left with? Uh-huh. The viewing public was left with. How do you? What do you? How can you encapsulate that work that you did? Yeah, I mean, all right. Say I've really been a real person since I was like twenty. Maybe I've been doing worthwhile things. If I'm lucky, what have I done in the past twenty years that has really been substantial? And does any of this history mean anything? And you know, this is only a decade ago, but within that decade. There's been so much change and turnover in Los Angeles, and it wasn't until, you know, really the past couple of months that I started doing that sort of introspection on, like, what did I do in the past 15 years that was interesting? And being involved with, you know, artists like Jason Yates or, you know, Bankhead or Don, Don Casper, Casper yeah, was sure. like it's like wow that was really a special time. Katie Hertzog, Katie Hertzog, Russell, yeah, yeah, Christopher Russell, Michael Decker, yeah. uh, Lauren Lavitt, you know, uh, Michael Bauer, uh, you know, being able to championing champion a sort of generation of art in L.A. in whatever small way I did, it feels good. Well, John, thanks for being on the show. Oh, this man, I love your so guys' much. program. Thank really you for great. doing this. You yeah. guys are really, uh, you know, documenting cool history. We're trying. And bye to Rachel in Abstentia. Bye, Rachel. Yeah. Bye, Rachel. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. And when you're there, do us a solid and uh, yeah. leave us a rating uh, and a review. That would be great. That would be great. You can find us anywhere you find podcasts on Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all of the places. Overcast. I'm a big fan of Overcast these days. Um, so uh, our theme music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And right now we're going to go out with a track from L.A. band Traffic Cult. And that's Dan Boy and Matt Norman. You should go to Bandcamp and find uh, Traffic Cult there. Uh, and we're going to go out with one of their tracks called Windsor Tunnel. <laughs>